0: The rest of you, while they're going out, you want to get out your sermon outline, says the person of the gospel on it. Hopefully you got one of those in your uh, bulletin, and if you didn't, then uh, maybe there's some more in the back. Have those to follow along. Before I start, I forgot one announcement, and it was really important, and I'm going to ask DB to give it to us. This week with uh, and meeting points and so forth, but the for That's a Saturday, right? Saturday. Saturday, August 5th, moving Bonnie. okay. And now let me say while we're catching up announcements, thank you to everyone that's uh, prayed for Joanne and brought us meals and they've been wonderful and she's doing great and is here this morning and has a new hip, um, which we're trying out, so... It's great because now I can catch her. So she's on crutches, goes pretty slow. Turn with me in your Bibles, or it's in your uh, uh, outline this morning, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Let's pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we open your word this morning, looking to hear from you. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself, reveal your will Show us direction. Comfort us that need comforting. Afflict us that need that. Convict, encourage, rebuke. Whatever your spirit chooses to do in our hearts, do this morning. Use your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Greg Graffin. I don't know how many of you know who he is. But he is the frontman, singer, songwriter for the punk rock band Bad Religion. Now you know, Mark, you run right out and pick up one of their CDs. Mark's a big punk rock guy, you know. It's just this Sunday thing he has. But Greg Graffin is their main songwriter, and he's the the, the frontman for the band. And he looks like a punk rocker. I mean, he's got the hair and the jacket and the tattoos and metal things sticking out of his body. He also happens to have a PhD in zoology. Typical average sort of combination, punk rock singer and zoologist. And he wrote his dissertation on evolution, atheism, and naturalism. Preston Jones is a history professor at a Christian college, John Brown University in Arkansas, and apparently he's a big fan of the punk rock band Bad Religion. And so one day, Preston, the history professor, sent Greg, punk rocker and zoologist, an appreciative email telling him how much he liked the music. And thus began an extraordinary correspondence between these two, as they sent emails back and forth discussing all the big topics, God, religion, evil, destiny, reality. And Preston gathered these up and published them in a book, which I have, if I can reach it right here. Is belief in God good, bad, or irrelevant? Is belief in God good, bad, or irrelevant. A professor and a punk rocker discuss science, religion, naturalism, and Christianity. And it's all their emails that go back and forth. And um, they're pretty amazing because they're diametrically opposed viewpoints. And yet they've become good friends through these emails. And in one of the most telling interchanges, email exchanges in this book, they write back and forth about the Subject of, am losing my microphone here, the subject of ultimate meaning. And Greg, who's a devout naturalist, writes the following to Preston, and I've excerpted it from a really long email. He writes, it seems that most people want to believe there is more meaning in the universe than actually exists. He's obviously not a believer, he's an atheist and a naturalist. And he says, there is a strong emotional drive to find meaning. This drive leads many people to accept religion readily because theologies reassure us that indeed there is ultimate meaning and ultimate purpose to human life. I never accepted such myths. As I grew up, I realized I mattered a lot less than I thought. Even though I can't formulate any ultimate meaning for it all, I know I'm just a small part of it, and I will soon be dead and so will my offspring Life has no ultimate purpose. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to somebody that says, it's just not all that important and it has no meaning. Do the best you can. So Preston, the Christian history professor, responds to Greg's assertion uh, that science and naturalism helps life to make sense to him. And he says this part that I cut out, even though it's ultimately meaningless. And so he responds in an email and he says, and I've cut this down from also a longer one, but he says, human life is ridiculous. Perhaps a better word is absurd. This claim makes many Christians, at least American Christians, nervous. They want to believe that if there is greater meaning in life than what we can create on our own, then life must make sense. But sometimes life doesn't make sense. I don't see how anyone could read the Bible and come away thinking that it paints a picture of a world that always makes sense. If the idea that God came into the world via a teenage virgin living in the backwater of of the Roman Empire isn't nutty, then I'm not sure what is. And it's the one thing I appreciate so much about the Bible. It takes seriously the fact that the world is nuts. The agony that pervades the natural world, the congenital geniuses in the third world who never learn to read because their demonic governments don't care about them. Restaurant workers on the upper floors of the World Trade Center forced to choose between jumping to their deaths or being burned to death. Paris Hilton acquiring international fame while genuinely talented actors play bit parts in moldy theaters. All of this is crazy. But what's worse is to see the door shut on life and then to walk away from it all saying that in the end, everything the life, the joy, the pain, the death was meaningless. He says, People know. Deep down inside, they know that some story is being worked out somehow. And that sadly, that story includes much pain. And he finishes with, life can be both absurd and meaningful. And then they continue their debate. And I was struck by Preston Jones' assertion that life can be both absurd and meaningful. Another way of phrasing that would be to ask the question, what is really important when life is falling apart? Or you might ask, when life doesn't make sense, what does? See, that's the very question the Apostle Paul is wrestling with as he writes to his good friend Timothy here in Second Timothy, our passage today. Because you see, life didn't make much sense if you were a Christian in A.D. 64. Paul wrote this letter in a time frame of approximately A.D. 64 to A.D. 66. It was near the end of his life, right before he was martyred. Church history and church tradition tell us that he was beheaded on the order of the Roman emperor. And in AD 64, the Roman emperor was named Nero. Nero was one of the cruelest men who ever lived. He was responsible for one of the first great persecutions of Christians, an outcome of a great disaster that had overtaken Rome in July of AD 64. You thought July of 2006 was hot. The great fire of Rome broke out on the 19th of July in AD 64. That's 1,942 years and four days ago. And we're told it burned for six days and seven nights and destroyed most of the city. Sacred shrines were burned, famous buildings were destroyed. Thousands upon thousands of homes went up in flames. Thousands lost their lives. Tens of thousands lost their homes and all their possessions. And although it's never been proven, many historians believe that Nero himself was responsible for the fire. It's also been written that whenever the fire started to die down, Nero sent his servants to rekindle it, to keep it burning. And whether true or not, that rumor was widely believed. All of Rome blamed Nero for the fire. And so Nero needed a scapegoat. He needed to shift the blame to someone else. And there were a group of people conveniently available to be blamed. The church. The Roman historian Tacitus writes that, quote, all human efforts, all lavish gifts to the emperor, the propitiation of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted, catch this, the most exquisite tortures on a class of people hated for their abominations called Christians by the population. It's a first century historian. Paul was a Christian. More than that, he was one of the leaders of the Christians and he's writing this letter from Rome in prison, in bondage, in chains. And he's writing to Timothy and through Timothy to the church. A church that lives in fear. A church that's being persecuted for something they didn't do. A church that's wondering what's going on. A church for whom the world isn't making a whole lot of sense right now. If you think about it, life probably didn't make much sense to Paul either. I mean, he could be out preaching and teaching and planning churches. But he's chained up in a dungeon. And the only thing he can do is write letters. And so he writes Timothy, and it's not just his last will and testament, although it sort of is that, and it's not just to encourage his young friend Timothy, although it's definitely that, but it's to help Timothy, the pastor, to face a persecuted congregation and answer the question, when life doesn't make sense, what does? See, the apostle had learned there's no such thing as a wasted experience with God. There's no such thing as a pointless time. The fact that Paul was suffering would somewhere along the line encourage other people to believe. And so he starts by emphasizing the importance of remembering. The importance of remembering. It's apparent from the Old Testament that remembering the great acts of God is essential to the spiritual well-being of God's children. In fact, God is very direct about this. We see it in the Passover. We talked about that in uh, Sunday school this morning. On the night before the Exodus, when God instituted the Passover rite as a perpetual ceremony in Israel, He instructed Moses to say, Exodus 12, And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And the Passover is meant to bring about spiritual memory and reflection. And then we see it in the Exodus itself. Later on, after they leave Egypt and they go out into the wilderness and they receive the Ten Commandments. And God thundered the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai and he charged Israel with the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And he gave specific instructions, as Dave read to us a little while ago, to impress them on your children. And he went on to say, Deuteronomy 6. When your son asks you in time, in time to come, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land he swore to give to our fathers. And again, we see the value of memory and reflection. And then after their time in the wilderness, they're getting ready to enter the promised land. We see it again, them crossing the Jordan. Most notable example of God's concern for his people's memory is at the crossing of the Jordan. He instructed the priests of Israel to take 12 stones out of the Jordan and pile them up in the promised land in Gilgal. And his instructions were very explicit, Joshua 4. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. The Israelites were to look on the stones and remember they didn't get across the Jordan on their own ability. It was the work of God. And realizing this, they were to conduct all of life accordingly, whether it was warfare or business or family life. So why all this emphasis on Remembering. Because God's children tend to forget. They forget the great things that God has done. Psalm 78 has 72 verses. And they're all about mourning Israel's tendency to forget God's faithfulness. Psalm 78, just two of those verses, 10 and 11. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders he had shown them. And we present-day children of God continue with the children of old by our forgetfulness of things that were once so vital to our faith and our life. But the emphasis here in 2 Timothy is positive. Those who remember what God has done, who cultivate the memory of God's great works on their behalf, will live to God's glory. Peter did that in uh, 2 Peter. He remembered how God had preserved Noah and had delivered Lot, and he concluded with this statement in Second Peter, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. If God did it for them, he will do it for us. And that's why theological memory is so important. This matter of remembering is what's on Paul's mind as he wrote his second letter to Timothy. Immediately after the greeting, he encouraged Timothy, he called to the memory, Timothy's memory, the faith of their uh, forefathers, And him and Timothy's uh, own deep friendship, Timothy's rich spiritual heritage, the day of his calling and gifting and ministry, and all this is at the beginning of the book, which Mark shared with you a uh, a few weeks ago. He told him to remember his calling, remember his spiritual heritage, remember uh, those who went before him, remember the sound teaching that he had received. Remember, remember, remember Remember, when life doesn't make sense, remember who does. You can write that down. When life doesn't make sense, remember who does. And that brings us finally to our text for this morning. Second Timothy chapter two, starting at verse eight. Remember the person of the gospel. Remember the person of the gospel. Beginning with verse 8, Paul again takes up this emphasis on memory by urging upon Timothy the most essential memory. He says, remember Jesus Christ. Remember the context, Rome's burning, great persecution, being run out of town, Nero is using Christians as nightly torches to uh, put out in his backyard to light for his parties. It's not a fun time. And Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David has preached in my gospel for which I too am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. The command to remember Jesus Christ calls for remembering Jesus two things first that he was risen from the dead and second that he was the offspring of david and those two things correspond to his names jesus and christ jesus the human name given to him at birth matches risen from the dead christ which means messiah matches offspring of david the initial emphasis is to remember his resurrection remember jesus risen from the dead And the reason to remember the resurrection is that Jesus' resurrection proved the gospel message. Paul had said earlier when he wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But he had been raised, as Paul argues, and the resurrection substantiated the gospel. Jesus' resurrection demonstrated the gospel's power. The good news of the gospel itself brings about the power for resurrection, spiritual resurrection, as we're born again. Paul proclaimed to the Romans in Romans 6, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then he later explained to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great mighty worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, Seated him at, right, at his right hand in the heavenly places. And ultimately, Jesus' resurrection not just means a spiritual resurrection for us, but it means a bodily resurrection for us. Again, 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as a man came... For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Remember the resurrection. Memory of Jesus' resurrection invites spiritual resurrection when through the gospel people believe and are born again, and it instills hope. Of a glorious bodily resurrection for all who believe he says remember jesus risen from the dead second remember his messiahship i'm not sure that's actually a word but it is today messiahship the parallel emphasis is remembering that he's the messiah the title christ always means messiah in the sense here remember christ the messiah the offspring from david jesus christ fulfilled the Davidic covenant, all those promises that were first made to King David all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. They're repeated throughout the Old Testament that a descendant of David would reign forever. And significantly, it was after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, that Jesus explained in Luke 24. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Memory of Jesus' messiahship invites the believer to see Jesus as the culmination of God's plan of salvation and to bow before him and worship him as king and Lord. And finally, he emphasizes my gospel. It's important for us To realize these two things, his resurrection and messiahship, make up the essential gospel. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Certainly there's other elements to the gospel. Christ's atoning death, uh, his imputed righteousness that comes by faith alone, through grace alone. I reverse that. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, so on and so forth. But this is shorthand for the whole thing. When he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, an offspring of David, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And Paul makes this clear in two other places in the New Testament, where he has these same signature words and themes. One of them we read this morning in Romans 1 in our responsive reading. Just the first few verses there. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Verse 3, concerning his son who is descended from David, according to the flesh, declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He says it again in 1 Corinthians 15. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. Verse 3, for I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the predicted, long-awaited Messiah, and he has been resurrected from the dead and lives now and forevermore. That's the gospel. Everything else in the gospel is implicit in and flows from these two supreme realities. As Messiah Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament uh, messianic prophecies, and he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as the resurrected Lord, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. He is the victor. He is all powerful. And it is this good news that Paul clings to as his own death approaches. This is the theological reality from which he draws strength. As he waits for this man to come by with an axe. We must keep before us Paul's command to remember. Timothy is to remember and keep on remembering Jesus Christ. Other memories are important, but this is the essential memory. This gospel memory, constantly replayed, will enable Timothy and us to stand and to suffer with Paul. Jesus Christ is the resurrected living Messiah. He's everything we need for life and salvation. And this is the theological memory that we need to constantly set before us in all of its biblical dimensions. Jesus Christ didn't come out of nowhere. He's the fulfillment of everything the scriptures pointed to concerning the Messiah. And he was resurrected and remains so. He lives. He's all-powerful. Keep on remembering this. And then he tells them to remember the power of the gospel, The theological grounds for suffering is more than just theory for Paul. His own experience bore witness to the reality of the resurrection and the availability of the power to stand and suffer. So Paul had a right to affirm the gospel's power. He says, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains, as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. His circumstances are humiliating, I think they were personally repugnant to him because he's considered a criminal. And the word here, translated criminal, is a strong word. It's actually a technical term used for the most violent people, murderers, thieves, traitors, who are to be punished by torture. Nero had just burned Rome, and he blamed the Christians of whom Paul was the leader. Thus Paul was chained and treated like a violent criminal. All this for the gospel. But there's no hint of self-pity in Paul. There's confident power, he says, but the word of God is not bound. You know, at one time there were over 600 miles of catacombs under the city of Rome. Nearly all of them dug and used by 10 generations of persecuted Christians over a period of 300 years. And some of those catacombs are still there today. You can go see them. They have tours and postcards. And the catacombs served during those times of persecution as meeting places and burial places. And over that 300 years, it's estimated that somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 million Christians had been in those catacombs. And I'm told that a common Latin description scrawled on the wall of the catacombs is, but the word of God is not bound. The unchained word here in Second Timothy is the gospel. God's word, my gospel, has not been and was not then chained. And Paul's again, speaking from experience, during his first Roman imprisonment, because he did this prison thing several times, he wrote to the Philippian church. He said, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Christ. In fact, his present imprisonment, the Lord had stood by him and given him the strength to proclaim his message before the Roman court, which he will report in a couple chapters in 2 Timothy 4. He says, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. He's stating the absolute freedom of the word of God, and it's just the same today. Any time where the church has been persecuted and oppressed, the word of God springs forth somehow. In the 1930s, what was to become the Soviet Union? Stalin, sort of a modern-day successor to Nero. He ordered a purge of all Bibles and all believers and closed the churches. And in the Russian city of Stavropol, I'm not sure I'm saying that right. Stavropol. This order was carried out with a vengeance. Thousands of Bibles were confiscated. Multitudes of believers were sent off to the prison camps, the gulag, where many of them died there for being enemies of the state. Well, after the fall of communism, I don't know how many can remember this, the missionary organization, this was in the early 90s, All the missionary groups, all the Western missionary groups got together. When the Soviet Union opened, they formed a group called the Co-Mission. And rather than everybody just sort of go helter-skelter, they assigned mission groups and denominations, different part of the old Soviet empire. The PCA was assigned to the Ukraine. We have many Presbyterian churches in the Ukraine today because of that. Well, they sent a team to the city of Stavropol, not knowing very much about that place and they experienced difficulty getting their Bibles shipped from Moscow. And one of the Russians, one of the older people who lived there, mentioned there's this warehouse outside of town where all the confiscated Bibles had been stored since Stalin's day. So after they finished their prayer meeting, one member of their group got up the courage to go to that warehouse and meet with the officials there and ask them if the Bibles were still there, perchance and they were. He asked them if they could remove the Bibles and distribute them to the people of the city of Stavropol. I said, that's a good idea. Would you like to use my truck? And they said, oh, thanks. That's great. And so they got his truck, and they uh, actually hired several uh, able-bodied young men in the area looking for work to help them load the Bibles into the truck and distribute them. One of the helpers was a young man Skeptical, hostile, agnostic college student. He'd only came because he heard he'd get a day's pay. And as they're loading the Bibles, he kind of disappeared. They found him in a corner of the warehouse, weeping. He had slipped away, hoping to, you know, quietly take, steal a Bible for himself. But what he found shook him to the core because the Bible he just happened to pick up had the handwritten signature on the inside of his grandmother. It was her personal Bible. He had stolen the very Bible that belonged to his grandmother, a woman persecuted for her faith all her life. No doubt his grandmother had prayed for him and her city. True story. God's word can no more be chained than God himself. And thus Paul declares that God gives us the power to suffer. He says, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may attain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There was a grandmother who endured everything for the sake of the elect, her grandson, that he might obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus. Jesus. The unstoppable power of God's word means it will prevail with the elect, that's you, so that they will be saved and brought to eternal glory. The powerful effectual word gives us reason to endure, as Paul does. And Timothy will likewise stand tall as he wields the unchained word. And then Paul tells Timothy to remember to trust the gospel. He concludes this long uh, admonishment to stand and suffer with him, which began all the way back in chapter 1, in uh, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, as I remember your tears. And he concludes actually with a poem. And each stanza begins with an if that describes the believer's actions, followed by a responding phrase. The first stanza says, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. And that's a reference, you've heard that before, to Romans 6. Romans 6, 8 is almost identical. It says, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. And that's primarily to do with the present. Jesus Christ's resurrection gives us a spiritual resurrection right now. Second stanza, if we endure, we will reign with him. And that is, addresses his main concern. Endure is the word he uses to describe himself. Uh, In verse 10, therefore, I endure everything. It means to hold your ground, particularly during affliction, and it involves suffering. And the reward for this is amazing because it goes beyond being with him to reigning with him. It's not just some pie-in-the-sky reward. He's very specific about this. In the parable of the minus, Jesus has the master say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful in little, you shall have authority over much, actually says over 10 cities. Reigning with him means we will be co-regents. Co-regency speaks of a privileged intimacy. And those who endure will be his co-regents and confidants. That's amazing. The eternal reward goes beyond eternal rest to eternal responsibility as co-regents with Christ. Third stanza deals with apostasy. If we deny him, he also will deny us. It references Jesus' well-known saying in Matthew 10. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Those are pretty hard words. To deny has a wide range of meaning from temporarily disowning like Peter did to Jesus to full-blown apostasy And that's what it means here. It's talking about apostasy, those who just utterly deny. It's not talking about a temporary disowning. Because Jesus denies those who do it, because of the similarity with his saying, and because the next phrase deals with the temporary unfaithfulness. It's an ominous declaration. He's going to mention a couple people, Hymenaeus and Philetus, in the next verses. And he says the terror that will unfold in the final judgment is eternal disownment. The stakes are high, Timothy, and they stay high today. Then the last stanza of the poem, he says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Whereas the third stanza was a warning. This one's a promise. If we lapse into unfaithfulness, he remains faithful faithful as Jesus remained faithful during the temporary denial by Peter. And you can go to John 21 and see Peter's restoration. I imagine that was a comfort to Timothy, who I'm sure wavered. If you remember when Mark preached, he was a weak guy. He didn't have a lot of confidence. He wasn't very strong. I'm sure he wavered in the faith, was probably unfaithful at times. What a promise to us who are often faithless Christians. Why is God like this? Well, the Magnificent Ending tells us, it says, for he cannot deny himself. His faithfulness is rooted deep within his graciousness as a covenantal God who always acts in conformity with his nature. What God is, he always is. No human, no man, no woman is always true to themselves. But God is always true to himself. He cannot be untrue to his own nature. Saintly Puritan Samuel Rutherford, who had spent many years in jail in Aberdeen in Scotland for the faith, he wrote, often and often I have in my folly torn up my copy of God's covenant with me, but blessed be his name, he keeps it in heaven safe, and he stands by it always. That's so beautiful. These memories are essential for standing and suffering. The first is most essential, remember the person of the gospel. Remember, he's the Messiah who fulfills all the promises of salvation, that he is the resurrected one living today. Hang on to that. Keep remembering it. Next, remember the power of the gospel. The word of God is not bound. And remember to trust the gospel. Because despite our lapses, despite our unbelief, despite our sins, despite our faithlessness, he remains faithful. And when that's told, the faithless, persecuted, suffering Christians trusting in the person of the gospel is still good news. You know, after we finish Exodus in the adult Sunday school class, uh, Jeff Jones is going to begin teaching us what we believe, uh, sort of a summary trip through the Westminster Confession of Faith. That's an important topic, what we believe. It was an important topic when Paul was writing. It was an important topic in the mid-16th century, the topic, what we believe. There was tremendous difficulty in the church at that time. The Reformation had begun. There was a lot of persecution with zealous Catholics reacting to this new wave of teaching known as the Reformation. Initially, the conflict was a theological one, but due to the sinfulness of man on both sides, it quickly became a physical conflict. One of the places the conflict was fiercest was in France. Catholic Church, but even more so, the mobs of people who claimed to be acting on behalf of the Catholic Church had taken the ascendancy in France. And Protestants were being persecuted. Some were driven into exile, many were beaten, far too many were killed, chiefly by burning at the stake. One of those reformists who was driven into exile, although not without his own set of sins, was a man named John. He went to Switzerland, and he regularly received reports of the atrocities performed in the name of religion. And so he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote. We have his English translation here. The Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, available to you in two volumes with small print. They're big books. became the first great work of systematic theology written in the Reformed tradition. But it wasn't written so we would know what a smart guy John Calvin was. And it wasn't written so we'd be able to use it in future Sunday School classes entitled, What We Believe. It was written, John Calvin wrote these, because his friends were being burned at the stake for the gospel. It was written because he wanted the world to know what his friends were dying for. So many of these martyrs were loudly professing Christ at the stake and they wanted it to stop. So when they brought them out, because they made a public spectacle of them to warn people against the Protestant heresy, that before they brought him out to be burned so that they couldn't uh, tell everybody about Jesus, they cut their tongues out first. They couldn't profess Christ anymore. Obviously, they had learned from the past and studied the exquisite tortures of Nero. You thought Nero died in the first century. Satan has found many Neros through the ages. And because John Calvin's friends could no longer profess the faith they were willing to suffer for and to die for, he became their voice. And he wrote the institutes of the Christian religion, not so that we could become proud in our knowledge of theology, but so that we would know what is worth dying for. You want to know the theme of the institutes of the Christian religion? I'll summarize the entire institutes for you in three sentences. It is this. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering. Bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's what those books are all about. Not because he was a great theologian. Not because we would be proud in our knowledge of theology. These were written because his friends were being burned at stake. Don't ever forget that. Remember, 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 remember. When life doesn't make sense, remember who does. Because you don't want to get stuck with bad religion. Perhaps we should pray. Take a moment to do that, and I'll close.